We are brought to you as always by Winmar, your restoration specialists. This hour, we're going to talk about a pretty fascinating London family. Imagine this. Your dad comes home. You're about 10, 11 years old and says, guess what? Today I quit my job. And we're going to make board games. If you're 10 or 11 years old, you might say, oh, that's cool. This is great. All right, dad. But if you're an adult, just imagine walking through the house and thinking, I'm just going to stop everything. This is kind of like going to Hollywood and we're going to make board games. And if we look at that time, it was not the 80s. We're not going to talk with the makers of Trivial Pursuit, although who knows? Maybe this could turn into something like that. It's not trivia based. But I've tried it, and it's fun. And so Connor Reed is going to join us. He was seeing this happen in the 2000s. This is not that long ago. And for his dad, maybe there wasn't quite as much success as Connor might be poised to have. And his dad did have success. So we'll talk with Connor Reed in about a half hour from now. Fascinating guy. He's created a game called Five Minute Dungeon. And if you celebrate Christmas, you know how Christmas Day goes, right? You get up in the morning. If you have small people in the house, you get up early in the morning. And you open what's under the tree. And then you eat or you do it vice versa, depending on rules in your house. And once that meal is done, you kind of sit back and go, huh, so that was Christmas, eh? Yeah. Uh, Comes around what? Once a year? Is that... Yeah, so we, uh, what do we do now? And you're kind of lost for the rest of the day. Seriously, Christmas Day, even from a sports perspective, remember when the NBA didn't jam in five games on their schedule? What was there to do? Nothing. I think they had the the blue and the gray bowl. Remember that? What even was that? Some college football game? I don't even know if they still have that. That's all they had. So there isn't a lot to do. You need something like Five Minute Dungeon. This thing is a lot of fun, and it is a board game, and apparently it is designed to bring people together, get families working together. You want to test this out? If you need to wallpaper something, does anyone use wallpaper anymore? Is that a thing? Maybe just paint? I have to paint a wall during the holiday break. Ask my wife. So if you're painting, you have to have that teamwork element, right? This is a good way to test and see who's going to work well with you when you wallpaper or paint or do any kind of family-type task where you need all of you working on the same page. So we'll talk with Connor Reed. Also on the show, we are going to be talking with Dave Boland, and we'll hear about his 2006 World Junior Hockey experience because if you are a World Junior Hockey fan, this year's team is really almost a mirror image of 2006. They were coming off a gold medal win. They had a lot of young players. They had a 17-year-old on their team. They only had one returner. All of those things are exactly the same this year. And Canada is getting set to play in Vancouver again, just like they were in 2006. Weird. I mean, just because they're going back to Vancouver, everything, everything's matching up? That's kind of strange. 
We'll see how it works out. Wayne Dunn is going to join us in about an hour from now because the Business Cares Food Drive has been loading up trucks, and they are going to count, and they'll have some final totals. So we're hoping to have those final totals for you right as they come in from Wayne Dunn with the Business Cares Food Drive. And then to close out the show today, there is something that you need to see this weekend because it's really well done. But you know what? Even if you can't get a chance to see it all this weekend— I can bring you some of it today. Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson sat down with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And she has an interview to look back over the year. Now, you know, what do you expect from the Prime Minister in most year-end interviews? Well, we're optimistic about the future and uh, we're positive about the past and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't really say much. Well, Mercedes does an exceptional job with this. Actually, you'll be able to see it on the West Block on Sunday. You'll be able to find it on or at globalnews.ca. But Mercedes does such a great job of this, and there is another point to it. There's a lot of London in this interview because Mercedes Stevenson goes right at the Prime Minister over not just China but Saudi Arabia, and with that, that's where the London talk comes in. General Dynamics the LAV contract. So we'll hear what the Prime Minister has to say about that. And that's coming up just after 2.30 today. So jam-packed show. Here's what we need throughout the show. If you don't mind emailing, if you've got a great story to tell, let's tell some great stories today. Best Christmas or best holiday celebration of this time of year, depending on what you do in your house. Think about what that would be. What happened? What made it so good? I'd love to share some of those stories. And then shoot me a quick email, mike at 980cfpl.ca. I was thinking about this driving in. And when you have kids, every Christmas is great because it's a lot of fun, um, especially when they're small. But I think the Christmas I'll always think back about was the Christmas that my wife and I spent together just after we met. We'd known each other for about five months, and we had nothing. We stayed in a basement where we didn't pay rent because it was going to be rented out. Never happened. Long story. You don't need to know about it. But the conditions weren't fantastic, but it was free, and that was fantastic. And I had just been let go from a DJing job in a bar because the bar closed. guess I should have done a better job DJing. And I was pulling in a hefty $160 a week on about 20, 25 hours. This is in the late 90s. So we had no money. I brought a pot to our relationship. And that year, we decided, you know what? We can't afford Christmas gifts, so let's not buy them. So we wrapped up stuff that we already owned. And we each gave each other two presents. We didn't have enough money for a, a real tree or a fake tree, but for $25, I think it was, we managed to find this little Christmas tree in a pot. It eventually fried on a balcony. But again, that's another long story. But we put them around the pot, and that morning we opened them up. And I still remember I got this shirt that I have to this day. I don't think I've worn it in 10 years. And you know that rule that you're supposed to go into your closet, and if you haven't touched something in six months, you should donate it? I can't donate this. I have to keep this shirt. I always will keep this shirt. And a magazine that I had. It was fantastic. 
Those were two, and I still remember opening those, wondering what they were, even though I already owned them. And I still think that was one of the most special Christmases, because that's kind of where we began. And you look back now and you go, yeah, all of that, that was worth it. If you have a story you can share, email mike at 980cfpl.ca. You know, the most asked question is right now, hot enough for you? Almost. That's, it's almost that question because it's been warm. The most asked question going right now on this, the shortest day of the year, is when is it going to snow? Are we going to have a white Christmas or any variation thereof? In a moment, we're going to talk with Mike Arsenault, global news meteorologist and sports reporter, weather specialist, and let's not beat around the bush with Mike. When we get him on the air, we'll ask that question. Um, it's going to be a white Christmas? That's next. This is London Live on Global News Radio. Before we go away, though, guess what? Marilyn joins us. Marilyn, I said we get a chance to talk before the end of the week. I'm glad that we did get a chance to do that. How are you? Oh, I can't complain, dear. Are you all set? Are you? Is everything ready for, for Christmas? Well, I'll tell you. I'm going to my girlfriend, Bonnie Brady, in Lambeth for Christmas, Christmas Day. And I'm going to my daughter's in St. Thomas. The family Christmas is there on Boxing Day. That's tremendous. So anyways, dear, what about the dog? I'd, you know what, Marilyn? There, I guess you could say there's still time. Uh, I, I didn't expect you to take my nose and put it right on the grindstone right now. Uh, there's still time, but we don't have plans to, to really get a dog. Well, honey, it's your business. It's none of mine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, whatever turns you on, you've got a cat, haven't you? Two cats. Seven Who legs. Gets? Oh, what's their names? Uh, one is called the Mean Kitty and lives up to his name, and the other one is called Pip and only has three legs. Well, if I get two more birds, I'm going to call them Stubbs and Needles. <laughs> I would love to come over and meet those birds someday. Well, to, well you'd like uh, Momo and uh, Brady, too. Brady's a little bitch, I'll tell you that. <laughs> All she does is pick on Momo. I think I'll separate them because I'm getting sick of listening to your picking on Momo. But anyways, you want to know about Christmas and hard times. Yeah. Well... Our first home on Quebec Street, this was before I was even thought of, I came late in life, um, was two chicken coops put together. Can you imagine that? And that was where your parents were living? That's where my, they um, lived, rented a house, and my dad would make these two, made these two chicken coops into a house and uh, for them a livable place. And a miserable lady across the road she was against it. And I mean, Quebec Street then was just a gravel road. She'd come across and she'd throw her garbage underneath their front window. Wasn't that miserable? Yeah. You know what I would have done? I'd have picked that garbage up and thrown it at her front door. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, then they, uh, they had Joyce and Harold when they were living in um, the shack, as it was called. And Dad built the house around that shack, and the wood he used was from the old Tecumseh Hotel uptown. And it just was a beautiful house by the time I came along, and uh, Judy, too, of course. 
that it was a beautiful place, and it was used in Elma Paint commercials or advertisements to the free press on Saturday nights. Really? And it was, I've got a picture. I've got a beautiful picture of it. The next time you and I, and I hope there'll be a next time, go out for coffee. I'll bring the picture with me. Look forward to it. Oh, but anyways, they were they were hardworking people, and we had the most wonderful Christmas I ever had was just after the war. And Dad wanted to take Judy and I to Toronto to see the department stores, Eaton's and Simpsons, all decorated up. Well, the first day we were there, we went um, up to a toy town in one of the big department stores. And as we went up the elevator, guess what was playing in the background in toy town? No idea. Arthur Godfrey's Too Fat Polka. <laughs> I don't I think th- I could recognize that. Uh, do you know that song? Not even a bit. I don't want her, you can have her, she's too fat for me. Oh, okay, now I know it. Yeah, now you I don't know think what. you can sing it these days, though. Well, no, no, you wouldn't be allowed to. And then there was another one that came along, She's Too Thin for Me. Mm, I don't think you can't sing that either. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, anyways, we um, we just spent about 20 minutes to half an hour on the, fer- on the um, carousel. And then we went around and saw Santa Claus, and I asked for this beautiful doll with the red hair. And uh, then my sister asked for a buggy. Well, sure enough, on Christmas Day, we got the uh, doll. I got my doll, and she got her buggy. Hey, Marilyn, that is a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing that. You enjoy next week, and yes, we will get together in the new year, and I want to see that picture. Okay, dear. Have a, you? What is your wife's name? Kirsta. Oh, isn't that a pretty name? I wish I had a name like that. I will tell her that. She oh. doesn't like her name at all. Oh, so. Oh, I I'll, I'll tell her you name. said that. Marilyn, you, you have a very Tommy Merry Christmas. And, and uh, Jack and your two cats <laughs> have, and your dear wife, Kirsta, have a great Christmas. Take care, Marilyn. All right, honey. Bye bye. Bye bye. We'll talk soon. Let's take a break. Is it going to be a white Christmas? That question. Gets answered next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Thanks to Marilyn for the Christmas story. You can email Mike at 980CFPL.ca. Okay, let's break this down. You know you're wondering, are we going to have a white Christmas? Well, let's reach out to the expert. Mike Arsenal is a weather specialist with Global News and joins us now. Mike, let's, let's just ask it. I'm just, I'm just going to lay it out there. Are we going to have a white Christmas? Uh, Mike, there's a bit of a caveat. Yes, there will be a little bit of snow over the next couple days, but if you're expecting southwestern Ontario to look like the end of It's a Wonderful Life in Bedford Falls when uh, George Bailey is happy that he's living again, that won't be the case. Hmm. Could it be a little like, I don't know, peanuts, where at some point Linus gets covered in some, I think his blanket got covered in snow? Could we have a a snow-covered blanket? 
Potentially, yeah. So what we're looking at is basically a couple centimeters on Sunday. We're going to get a little bit cooler, so I know it has been unseasonably warm the last couple of days, really, for much of the week. So we're going to head back to around the freezing mark. So expecting some wet flurries on Sunday, a centimeter or two. And then with temperatures highs around zero for both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, it's unlikely that snow will stick around, especially with one to three centimeters, won't stick around on uh, any roadways. It may linger on the grass, but uh, in terms of that, that perfect white Christmas with uh, the carols and the, the bells ringing, that's not, that won't be the case, unfortunately, for 2018. Mike Arsenault with us. You see him on Global News doing weather, doing sports, and right now helping us to predict whether or not we're going to have a white Christmas. And right now it's looking eh, like on the, the no side. But you mentioned seasonal temperatures when we get into next week. What is even seasonal for this time of year in southwestern Ontario? So right now we should be right around freezing, so between zero and one degree. I know it has been mild this week, but yeah, we'll be right around seasonal as we head toward uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day for much of next week. But I always find interesting, Mike, that uh, when we get to the Christmas season, everyone's looking forward to the snow, and when it doesn't happen, they're mad at me. And then, of course, once we hit January 1st, when it is snowing, everyone wants it to be, to be warm again. So unfortunately, I'm not bringing the best news as we head toward Christmas Eve and Christmas Day for this year. Mike, how many times in the last couple of days have you been asked about a white Christmas? Can you walk outside in any way? I don't know if I'm smart enough to count to a number that high, Mike, to be honest. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's pervasive. Everyone wants to know. That's the, the, the biggest question. Will it be a white Christmas? And it is it's funny, as I mentioned, like when it's... When it's snowing, we love snow in December, and I'm the same way. If I could just have snow between December 15th and January 1st, and then we have 20 degrees and sunshine the rest of the year, that I think is my my perfect climate. That would be my wish to, to live in a world where the weather would be like that all year round. How does someone who deals in weather deal with the blame that you get in all of this? You have to develop a thick skin. Like, you're, you're on Twitter, right, Mike? It's pretty much like being on Twitter, right? So you, you, get the, you get people upset at you, but you just kind of think of that as white noise, right? They're not really mad at you. It's just uh, the situation that you're, you've brought yourself in, right? The situation that you're telling people what they will experience uh, weather-wise. So it's, it's, I know they're, they're not really mad at me. It's just the, the situation. So that's kind of what I've had to tell myself over the past five years of, uh, of being a weather specialist. I didn't know whether I would give your Twitter handle at the end of this. Now I'm, I'm all of a sudden leery to do it. Is it okay if I still do it? Oh, you can. And Ed, well, Mike, I love talking to, to you guys in London because I'm actually a former London major myself. I played uh, for the majors back in 2011. So anytime I can either talk to or visit southwestern Ontario, the London area, it's always a pleasure. Now, playing in Labatt Park, a lot of people will visit Labatt Park, sit in the stands, but you get to be on the field. What is that field like compared to other fields you got to play on? Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, I, I was a pitcher. I started the season pretty well, but by the end, I was like most of the fans in the stands. I was, I was sitting watching for uh, for most most of the season. But uh, during batting practice, I mean, it really is just you can't picture a better viewpoint at any park really in Ontario that I played with throughout my uh, throughout my career. It is just spectacular the sight lines you have there, and the field is kept in really spectacular condition. It is. I mean, by far the crown jewel of the Intercounty Baseball League loop in terms of both field conditions and just kind of the overall baseball ambiance that you can get uh, in Labatt Park. And see, it's nice to talk about baseball when we're going to get a little bit colder here, Mike. This will kind of keep our, our hearts warm as we head into the brunt of winter, of course, because today is uh, the first day of this new season. That's right. And it's the shortest day of the year. It's a tough night for baseball. You need the lights. 
You do, and then well, this is this is the thing. I, I always talk about this is the shortest day of the year, and the the anchors of uh, Global News at eleven, uh, Anthony uh, Robart and Crystal Gamanson, they always give me trouble because I say it's the shortest day of the year, but they get into the semantics. Well, it's actually not the shortest day. The day is still twenty four hours. But of course, we're talking about daylight, <laughs> but that's the light at the end of the tunnel, Mike. We have this is the shortest day of the year. We're going to have increasing daylight from now on until the middle of June. So that uh, also can keep us warm during these cold nights that we will experience as we move into January and February. We're going to stay around seasonal again for the rest of December. Follow Mike Arsenault on Twitter at Mike G Arsenault. Maybe look for him to make a Ricky Henderson-style comeback sometime soon. What do you think? I'm, I'm on to tennis now, Mike. The baseball career, I, I reached the, the highest peak I could in the Intercounty League, so now I'm hoping uh, tennis-wise I can, I can climb the uh, Canadian national ranking a little bit before I get uh, too long in the tooth. Can't wait to see that happen. Mike, thanks for this. Thank you. Mike Arsenault, Global News weather specialist, former London major. Maybe we can tell some Ricky Henderson stories in a moment. We do have some Christmas stories to tell. We'll get to those after Jacqueline LaBelle and news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It's time to say it again. We have the best listeners here on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. I was wondering about that blue-gray game. I can remember being a kid and all the hoopla and everything of Christmas morning ends. And I thought, okay, what's going to happen now? And I turned on the TV, and the only thing going in the sports world was the blue-gray game. Thanks to Joe. Joe says that the last time that thing was played was in 2001, and they basically had made up NCAA teams from Confederacy states and Union states, and they played it out as the Civil War all over again. Ten-year-old me didn't have enough history knowledge to figure that one out. Yeah, that had to stop. Thank you for making that stop. Uh, also want to, uh, thank, and I, I don't have an actual name for this, but here, let me read the email that I got. We're asking for your most memorable Christmas just throughout the show. Just jot a couple things down, email it to Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Let's share some good stories. It says one of my most memorable Christmases is when we had no money, very similar to your story of no money for a tree. We somehow managed a tree. I think it was given to us from the people who lived above us. We were also in a basement, downstairs apartment. Uh, I'm talking about my ex, but it was still one of my most memorable Christmases as we had no money for decorations or anything. What we did have was someone who insisted we open a gift early. And it happened to be a bunch of Post-it notes, little tiny, tiny ones, and the gift consisted of a couple of cardboard boxes for coffee tables and that Christmas tree. We were shoveling driveways for money. Both of us were out of work that year. We ended up wrapping up the little tiny, tiny Post-it notes, and they would look like gifts. And thankfully, the Post-it note paper we used as gift wrap, we decorated with a couple of pens we had, and we decorated our tree with stuff from around the house that we could find. And those Post-it notes that we wrapped ourselves, made our tree wonderful, made our Christmas wonderful, to appreciate even the little things in life and the fact that we got creative and did something together that I'm sure we will never forget. At least I know I will never forget. Thank you for that, huh? That's what it's about. As much as you don't want to wish a Christmas celebration without much, sometimes you look at that, and you say, you know what, that, that was actually a really, really good year. And if you have a way to 
make somebody's Christmas a little bit more special. Maybe they're going through one of those times. The littlest, tiniest thing will get that done. Next up, we're going to meet Connor Reed. Connor is having himself a really good holiday season so far because he's able to watch shoppers out hustling and bustling and buying something he made. He is basically the rock star of the board game universe. He's from London, and he is the creator of a game called Five Minute Dungeon. Now, I've tried this thing out, and I could see it being really addictive. We only had it for a little short period of time, but I'm going to make sure and go out and get a copy um, because this, this is fun. And there is a design in this game to try to get people together. And Connor also has a pretty cool story himself. Picture your dad coming home one day and saying, you know what, just quit my job. We're going to make board games. Well, it may have worked out in a big way. Connor Reed is next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you are lucky enough to have some time off over the holidays, you know what's going to happen. One day, somebody will say, hey, want to play Monopoly? And you'll pull out Monopoly and you'll get the game going. And after about, I don't know, what will it take? 40 minutes? 45? Come on, nobody can hit an hour. You'll go, you want to just count up the money and be done? And that's the way that Monopoly works. It doesn't have the same grab. As it used to, I don't find. But there are board games that do, and one of them was created by a Londoner. His name is Connor Reed, and we're lucky enough to have him with us right now on London Live. Connor, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm great. You have created a board game in a world that has all kinds of apps and video games, and now we're headed toward a whole lot more virtual reality. It's got to be nice to know that board games can still work, because this one does. This one's fun. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, it's, we really want to have experiences that bring people to the table and bring families together to get together and like actually you know, talk to each other. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's one of those important things. Was that kind of the reason for creating this, or are you a big fan of board games? Where'd it come from? Well, uh, oh, that's that is a long answer <laughs> because uh, back in about the year two thousand, uh, my dad actually quit his job to go make board games full time. Come on, so yeah, was so this then, was he in London at the time? Oh yeah, yeah. So he's been we've been uh, here for. Oh, well, I guess 18 years now. A long time. Okay, so but, uh, he know. has a job. He decides to quit his job to create board games. How old were you at the time? Um, I, 10? 8? <laughs> My math is not good, apparently. And in, in doing that, did he have any proof that this could be a, a good avenue for him? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you'd have to ask him on that. <laughs> I think he he thought he could he could make it work, and he definitely did. As we're still here, and we've won, we've made a bunch of board games over the years, and won you know various industry awards and stuff. And uh, it, it's yeah, it's been a really interesting journey that I hopped onto probably uh, eight eight or so years ago. So when did Five Minute Dungeon kind of begin in this process? 
Uh, yeah. So when I started, I did a bunch of like packaging design and like web design and stuff. So I was kind of in the background, in the background, like working around the game parts, but not actually making them. And then uh, 2016, so two years ago, I started noodling on an idea to, that I then pitched as like, hey, what about this? Uh, which eventually became Five Minute Dungeon. All right. Now, did you wake up one morning and think, you know, this this would work? Because we'll explain how the game works in just a minute, at least the, the basics of it. But how do you come up with an idea for a game? Uh, for, for this one in particular, uh, we had been playing uh, a, a certain phone game at work a lot during our lunch breaks. And it was something where we're all, like, yelling at each other and, like, you know, set the flanges to six and go forward and go. And it was this energy that, that I had never experienced in a board game. And I was like, why, why don't board games give us that type of energy, that type of, like, you know, frantic communication and, you know, trying to work together towards a common goal? And so that, that little nugget kept, like, I kept kind of working at that idea. So there was a lot of uh, time in the shower going like, okay. So, I, you know, you need to be quick, so you need to match symbols, you need to, you need a group that are working together, so you need, like, adventurers, and it, it slowly, over time, became, uh, became the game. All right, well, we're talking with Connor Reed, creator of Five Minute Dungeon. Uh, Connor, let's talk about how Five Minute Dungeon works. If you are to tell somebody, here's what the game is about, where do you start? Uh, yeah, sure. Five Minute Dungeon is a chaotic, cooperative card game, meaning... We are all working together to defeat a dungeon in literally five minutes. So to that end, there's a little like timer app that keeps track and goes like, you have four minutes left, you have three minutes left. But the main game is there's a deck of cards in the center, and everyone has a hand of cards. You flip over the top card of the, of the dungeon deck, and it has a bunch of symbols on it. The cards in your hand also have symbols. So all you're trying to do is match the red sword to the red sword on the card. And there's no turns in it, so everyone's just racing to match the symbols as quickly as you can. So you go, oh, I've got a sword. Oh, I've got a shield. And then you're like, okay, we matched it. And you just sweep that away and flip over the next one, which creates this really quick gameplay that you're trying so hard to just focus on what's in front of you and getting through the dungeon. Well... In playing it, I've got to tell you, my wife, my son, and I sat there, and you just described it perfectly. You're yelling, hey, I've got this, or you've got this, because it doesn't matter. It's not like, well, one person has to have a sword, and one person has to have this. You, Anybody can do it. But that's where the strategy seems to come in, because, you know what, I'm, I'm a little slow off the draw sometime. I still had cards left over, and, and they were out, and then my cards didn't match what was needed, and, well, needless to say, we didn't get out of the dungeon on our first try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's something that is deceptively simple. It's At its core, it's match some symbols, but the, the way you need to communicate and work together determines whether or not you're actually going to be successful. And so I think it's something you actually get better at as you play. Yeah. As you, work, as you learn to communicate and work together, you get better at the game. But yet, you've got so many dimensions to this game where you don't have to be playing it with eight people, you don't have to be playing it with four people, you can play it really with, with any number of people. It is cooperative, so you need what, at least two? Yeah, it's a, it's a two to five player. Okay, so you've got two to five players, but as you add players, you can actually make the dungeons a little harder. How, the complexity of it 
is is kind of difficult to appreciate probably over the radio, but you've kind of allowed for more players or fewer players to be in the game and the game still to be challenging, still to work. Just because you add on, hey, get a neighbor to come over here and help out doesn't mean that you're going to get out of the dungeon. It actually gets harder. How do you allow for that? That from a from a gameplay perspective, that you add more stuff to the dungeon and you make it harder for for everyone to get through. But from a like balance thing, that's a lot of just like every day at lunch playing it with different uh, groups and trying to see okay, is it too hard or too easy over here? And making small adjustments that add up over time to something that's like okay, it's fun at four. Okay, it's challenging at three. Okay, it's good at two. You know. We're talking with Connor Reed, the creator of Five Minute Dungeon. Connor, when did you know you had it? When did you play it one time at lunch and say, "I, I think this is it. We've got it." I th- interestingly for this, I th- it was more the, the like, way back in the like planning phase where it was like, "I think this can work. I'm pretty sure this can work." And like the first time we put together a uh, little playtest deck with just like some you know, printed on stuff. And we're just like, okay, let's try this. And you play it and you're like, that, that wasn't too bad. That, that kind of worked. And I think that just, there's so many times you create a game idea, you play it and you go, no, nah, it just doesn't work. This, <laughs> this doesn't feel right. But this felt really like, it felt good right from the beginning. Okay. Now we have to go to the fact that you have something that you knew was a good idea. You're able to put it into play. People are enjoying it then what do you do with this? Because so many of these ideas, so many of anyone's ideas, can kind of get stifled by the fact that they just never get out there to the masses. How do you reach out? Well, there's two, there's two kind of strategies within the, the board game industry. One is go, and there's a bunch of like conventions that happen throughout the year in various parts of the world that you go to, and you're like, hey, Hasbro, what do you think of my game? And... You know, we did that with Five Minute Dungeon. We brought it to a bunch of publishers, and mostly we heard no. But what we kept hearing, which is you, you hear a lot of no's, but what we kept hearing was no, but have you considered Kickstarter? And no, but have you thought about Kickstarter? So after about the fourth or fifth time of hearing that, we kind of went, should we put this on Kickstarter? Which is what we ended up doing. And we ended up with in the top 1% of Kickstarters, if you go by backers, of all time on Kickstarter. Really? Which was incredible. So wait a minute. The Kickstarter, obviously, it, it asks people to kind of make an, an investment in the game, and then for that you get kind of little things that, that other people wouldn't get. You you might get a, a tie into the game. Sometimes if you're you know using Kickstarter for a novel or whatever, you might get a mention in the book or something like that. So you guys wound up blowing out Kickstarter then. Yeah, way, way crazier than we expected. With We had 8,000 uh, backers, which was incredible. And then um, we, yeah, like we, we created some extra stuff for our Kickstarter backers that you get because you helped make this. And then from there, a bigger publisher came along and picked it up, uh, Spin Master Games, who's from Toronto. They picked it up, so it's, and they have spread it throughout the, uh, throughout North America. So to see this, I mean, this sounds a lot like somebody who writes a hit song and then all of a sudden starts hearing it on the radio or, you know, seeing it appear here and there, hearing their voice, seeing their face. Is that what this is? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's very, 
I think it's like that, only on a completely different <laughs> scale. You're a rock star of board game creation. <laughs> sure, sure. We could we can go with that if you want. So what happens now? Uh, now we just we just did another Kickstarter for an expansion to the game that did even better than the original Kickstarter, which was incredible. We had ten thousand people. We we funded it. We reached our goal on that in twenty minutes, which is lunacy. You have we said okay, we have two weeks to meet our goal, and we met it in twenty minutes, which is incredible. See, it's like selling out a concert instantly. It's <laughs> you're still the rock star of board game creation. <laughs> it's it's yeah, sure. It's very similar to that. Well, yeah. so you you have an expansion. In fact, you have kind of a Kickstarter event coming up in the new year. Where's that happening? Uh, that's happening at uh, it's happening January fifth at uh, Cardboard Cafe downtown, which is if you haven't been there, it's a wonderful uh, like you know bistro where you you go down and you you can they've got a big range of games that you can just pick off a shelf and go hang out with your family or friends and play board games there. That's outstanding. Okay, and what time is that happening during the day? Uh, that's happening from noon until I think four, <laughs> but uh, we may end up staying longer depending <laughs> on how long people want to be there. Yeah, I I think you've hit on something. What is it like to to now look at your game? Because you know you you look at this, the artwork is fantastic. The cards, like, this is not like something that someone has just kind of created. This this is as official as a game is going to get. What's it like to look at that right now? It's it's really surreal. I think the first time you go into something like you you look at the game that you've made is is something, and then there's a different experience when you go to like Walmart and you see it on a Walmart shelf, or you go to you know any store. It's in Toys R Us in London, and it's like it's right there. That's the thing I made on on a shelf. Like people can play this thing, and that's that's surreal and cool. Well, it is a whole lot of fun to play. I'd recommend it to anybody. We talked about it earlier in the show. If you celebrate Christmas, once you've done the opening of the presents and once you have eaten the food in the morning, it, it kind of lags the rest of the day. This this is a thing that prevents lag. So congratulations. Uh, not only have you put yourself on the map, uh, you've put London on the map, and uh, job well done for doing that. Uh, really appreciate the time, Connor. All the best in the new year. Can't wait to talk about what else happens for you. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Londoner Connor Reed, creator of 5-Minute Dungeon. We'll take a break and let you know what's up in Hour 2 of London Live next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Part of the holidays, World Juniors especially if you're a hockey fan. Dave Boland sat down and talked with us about his World Junior experience because there's a real mirror image between what was happening in 2006 when he played and what is about to happen for Team Canada now in 2018. Well, here's some stories from Dave Boland. We will get the final tally on the Business Cares Food Drive from Wayne Dunn, and then please do not miss this. Global News. Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson sitting down with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and talking about London, General Dynamics, and the LAV contract, and a few other topics going back through 2018 and ahead toward 2019. Next up, Jacqueline LaBelle with news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson had a chance to sit down with the Prime Minister. And one of the things that they spent a good chunk of time on, I'm talking like two to three minutes, was General Dynamics, the workers in London, the LAV contract, Saudi Arabia. And later on this hour, we're going to have that for you. You'll be able to see the entire interview on the West Block on Sunday on Global. You'll be able to find it at globalnews.ca, but we will certainly have that. And then a bit about China, also a bit about some of the things happening within our own borders. How out of whack are we because of the Trans Mountain Pipeline? One of the things that we heard from Dan McTagg from GasBuddy.com throughout this year was that this is a major issue. And now look at where it's gone. The fact that it didn't work out and that, you know, what actually got in the way of it? You had some protesters and, you know, got to listen to everybody. This this troubles me. This troubles me a lot. You know, and I, I see this in high school a lot where everybody, you know, you kind of, I call it going down to the lowest common denominator. You go down to the lowest common denominator, and whatever they're doing, that's what everybody else has to be measured against. Instead of raising the bar, you should have to jump and try and touch the bar instead of lowering to the lowest common denominator and going from there. And I find that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau does some of that, that it's about lowest common denominator, and then, you know, let's, let's make sure everybody has everything, everybody. That's not the way the world works. This is not how you succeed. It's not how you move forward. So I'm interested to hear more of the interview between Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson from Global News and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. That's coming up as well. Final numbers on the Business Cares food drive. But if you are a hockey fan, we are heading into World Junior time. And we've got two London connections to this year's World Junior team. Nick Suzuki is a Londoner who plays for the Owen Sound Attack. Evan Bouchard is the captain of the London Knights. Both of them will be playing in a pre-tournament game tonight. But if you look at the last time the tournament was held in Vancouver and surrounding area, at that time it was Vancouver, I think they had games in Kamloops, Kelowna, they have one in Surrey, Chilliwack maybe, somewhere in and around the Vancouver-slash-BC area. When they did that in 2006, the team was young. They had a bunch of 18-year-olds. They had only one returning player. And they had a 17-year-old on their team. That 17-year-old, his name was Jonathan Taves. This year, you've got one returning player. Would have been two, but unfortunately, Alex Formanton of the London Knights hurt his knee. And you have, a again, a good chunk of 18-year-olds, and you have a 17-year-old named Alexi Lafreniere. You have only one returner, a guy named Maxim Comtois, who played last year and won gold. The similarities are crazy. So this week on Around the OHL, it's a, it's a podcast that you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite shows. We actually sit down with Dave Bolin, Jake Jeffrey and I, and I want to take you back to that conversation right now, just in case you don't get a chance to hear it on the podcast. We talked first off with Dave Bolin about just how nerve-wracking the minutes are before you find out that you have made Team Canada and you will be playing at the World Juniors. Uh, it's pretty nerve-wracking. I think uh, the the, uh, the year before when they had Crosby and Perry and Getzlaff, uh, I was uh, I was last cut. And, you get uh, you get that call in the morning uh, at 
6 a.m. and you wait in your room and you wait for your phone to call. And But uh, the year after when I did make it, uh, I didn't get that call and I was there and I was assistant captain and uh, it was, uh, it was, it was probably one of the biggest moments of, uh, well, not, not the biggest, but still up there. It probably is still at the biggest, but uh, biggest moments of my life. So when you're in the room, because that's the way they used to do it, that second year, do you look at the phone? Do you not look at the phone? Are you watching TV? What do you do? Oh, well, you got your roommate in there. So I think both of you are just talking, trying not to pay attention and make sure the time flies by and phone doesn't ring uh you're just hanging out watching tv and just hoping the phone doesn't ring and you you just wait <laughs> when do you know you're actually safe when do you know you've made uh, the team you know you've made <clears throat> i'm trying to think and remember now that uh like i think it's just after uh a certain time they uh they sort of call everybody down to the room and, in the hotel and they call you into the hotel room and you go into the room and everybody's sitting there and you know, you made it, and they give you the spiel, and they give you all the Team Canada stuff, and let's get ready to go, and let's get started. And I'm sure, Dave, like, like most kids growing up playing hockey, you, you dreamt of playing in those World Juniors games. It's sort of on the top of every, everyone's mind this time of year. You know, was there any pressure on yourself, especially being on home soil, or is it one of those things where you just wanted to enjoy the moment and see what could happen? Actually, there was no pressure on us, because we were, they had us doubted. They were they had us finishing fourth or fifth. Uh, I remember uh, they, they 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 didn't really have us uh, winning it. They didn't have us uh, going far. Uh, I remember seeing in the rankings that that, that year. Uh, but there still was pressure on us because we were in Vancouver on home soil, uh, and we did want to win it uh, in Vancouver uh, on on home soil too. So there was that little bit of pressure too. But coming in as a, a little bit of the underdogs. Uh, we didn't really have much pressure, but we came together as a group pretty quick and uh, stuck together quick, and we came out with a gold medal. We're talking World Juniors with Dave Boland. That team that year, and it just so happens that the tournament is in the same place again in Vancouver and kind of surrounding area. That year, I think it was Vancouver and Kelowna and Kamloops, and now you've got Vancouver and Victoria. When you look at the rosters, they were similar. You only had one returner on your team, Cam Barker, and you had a number of 18-year-olds. You even had a 17-year-old Jonathan Taves. How good was he at 17? Yeah, Taser was same as he same as he was uh, when I played with him in Chicago. Uh, he was that serious. Uh, he was he could have been the captain that year as well, uh, the way he was. Um, but uh, we. we we didn't have a bunch of skill guys. We uh, we had a lot of hard workers that came out and uh, came out and and took things to the next level. And we, whatever Brent Sutter said, we listened to him and we we, we went along with it. Uh, and I think Brent did a great job with us. And I think we worked hard and we we did what we were told to uh, to help win that gold medal. But, uh, but yeah, like you look at some of the guys that were on that team: uh, Cogliano, Chipchura. Um, a few other guys, uh, Ryan O'Mara, uh, Cam Barker was the one returning guy coming back. It was, it was pretty, uh, it was, it was, it wasn't like the 85 team, uh, the year before that, uh, that, uh, that won and had all the superstars on it. I think we had a lot more of, uh, of grinders and guys that worked hard and, and that stuck to the program and, and we won. 
Well, and in a small, a quick tournament like that, it's so important for the guys, you know, to to gel and be tightly knit in order to succeed like that. Did you notice kind of as your career went on into the NHL that you kept tabs with with those guys from that team or that you played with them like guys like Jonathan Taves and Cam Barker or, you know, you faced off against a guy? Did you always have that to look back on? Oh, yeah, you always do. You always, uh, I think you always look at those uh, those fine moments uh, of your career and that's one of them. Uh, I think I was in... uh, I was in London, England, not too long ago, when Ryan O'Mara was living in London, England, and he played with us that year and uh, on that team. And we chatted up and was like, "Oh, hey, what's going on? Just hey, you're in London, not ah, me too. So go out, have a beer." So it's just, uh, it, 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 it is. It's, it's a funny moment. It's a funny thing how one little thing can keep you guys connected for a lifetime. But uh, just that, uh, just that whole tournament, the whole experience, and everything. It's like you said, it's it's a childhood dream. You, you you wake up every Christmas or Boxing Day, whichever day it is, and you turn on the TV and you wait for if the, you know if the game's overseas, you, it's a little earlier. If it's uh, if it's not, but uh, it's 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 one of those childhood dreams that you talk about. It's you dream about it every day. Like you pointed out. Your team could have finished out of the medals, and people would have said, "Well, yeah, you know what? It's kind of that that down year in the swing of the World Juniors, the way they go." But you blew out Finland five one to start the tournament. You had some close games in the round robin, a, a one goal game against Switzerland. Do you remember the U.S. game at all on New Year's Eve and how crazy that one was? Yeah, I remember a little bit. I think I, I, I do remember a bit of it. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I think Jack Johnson was playing against us. I think he was. I think Downey hit him. I think Dusty Downey hit, made a big hit or something like that. But uh, I, I just remember, I just remember. I think it was like Steve Downey, Bertram. Um, they were the uh, they were the heavy hitters. I remember there was a few huge hits that just would get the team going or would get the the crowd going. And it was, we were playing at the Rogers at Vancouver's uh, home rink there, and that place was going nuts. And I know. Playing in it after playing against Vancouver, I uh, played for Chicago, Chicago Blackhawks. It was pretty quiet, but uh, when I was there playing for uh, Team Canada, that place was rocking and it was loud. And I couldn't believe how loud it was getting. How key was that in you guys winning? Because Steve Downey was such a big part of that tournament. Like you say, hits or clutch goals, but just having that crowd, how much of a difference do you think that made? Yeah, it happened. It, it's, it's, it's just having the crowd behind you gets you, gets you going uh, when you have. 20,000 people yelling and screaming and going nuts. Uh, it's it's pretty crazy. You get goosebumps and you get a little extra step in, uh, in your skate. And I think uh, there's little things that can go on. And during that tournament, you were having a great offensive season in the OHL. But, I mean, going to that tournament, how much at that point did you realize, you know what, it's going to take a whole lot more than just putting up points to, to make that next level? Was it a bit of an eye-opener for you? It was. It was. I, I think once you really look at what's going on and you see there's you get the best players all over the world coming to play and yet Malkin and other guys that that were coming to play and uh it was it, it was it was it was an eye opener for myself uh going there and seeing what it was like. I know uh that was my first uh tournament kind of uh playing against uh Russia and all that. Um so I uh it, it was it was a bit of an eye opener just to see other players that you hear about um, in Russia or Finland or Sweden um, to come play against. So it was uh, it was fun. 
Well, and spring 2005, you won a Memorial Cup with London. Then less than a year later, you, you win a gold medal at the World Juniors, and then you go on to win two Stanley Cups as well. I know it's, it's awfully hard to separate each one, which one's better, because all of them ha- are probably so special in their own right. But do you feel that one sort of kind of sets you up and prepared you for the next one? Uh, for sure. I think uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was the Memorial Cup that kind of uh, set it all up. Uh, just having that team that we had there in, in, in London, um, and the guys that we had, uh, and just the group, and just how tight we were, uh, you, you, you kind of see those winning roles and just things you got to do to win. And I think uh, going to Team Canada and having that group that we didn't have a bunch of superstars on the team, we didn't have a whole bunch of uh, guys that were going to be doubted in the NHL. We had a lot more second, third line guys that that were grinders and we worked, uh, we were hard workers and we, we got to work. Um, but I think that Memorial team did kind of set the tone for myself to gradually get higher and higher and win some other things and win a Stanley cup as well. In 2006 at the world juniors, we're talking with Dave Boland about his world junior experience. You didn't allow a goal against in the semifinal or the final two shutouts in that gold medal game you won five nothing. You beat Evgeny Malkin, who, like you say, no one really knew a lot about at that point. You were just waiting to see how good this guy was. When did you allow yourselves to think, you know what, we've got this. We're going to win this. Yeah, it was like first the first little bit of the game. We, I think, we were kind of worried. Kind of, geez, like this is crazy. We're in the gold medal. We're in the finals here. We're we weren't. They didn't have us slotted in here. We weren't. Uh, we weren't supposed to be here. So. I think for us, we were guys were a little, uh, probably a little like, whoa, 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 what's going on? But uh, I think we we came together pretty quick. Uh, we put things together quick, and we came together, and we had to accomplish what we did, and we did. Uh, we won that gold medal. Uh, I don't think until the game was ended that we made sure that uh, that that we could celebrate and be sure that hey, like we we got this. So um, it was a fun game. It was crazy. I think. Uh, Winning it in Vancouver and winning it in front of uh, Canada was unbelievable. And Dave, I'm curious, in, a, in an NHL locker room, how much is this tournament, you know, watched and paid attention to? I'm sure you have some fun little bets among some of the uh, the other guys in your NHL teams. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were like, even later on, uh, even later on in my career when I was playing for Chicago and that, uh, I'd get up mornings, even Christmas Day and that, and I'd watch it too. Uh, you, it's just one of those... I know, as a Canadian, as you guys would think, you guys, you guys as well, it's a, it's a tradition in most family houses and across Canada. Uh, you, you wake up, you wake up that morning, and you turn on the TV, and you're watching the uh, Team Canada. So it's tradition. Where are the most vivid memories for you? Having the gold medal placed around your neck, or being arm in arm with your teammates belting out "O Canada"? No, I think uh, I think going arm in arm. Well, two big things. I have the gold medal too, but I think doing the uh, going the arm in arm and singing "O Canada" is probably the uh, the one. Well, you don't get to do that in very many situations. You got to do it in Vancouver. Here's hoping Team Canada gets to do it again. Dave, thanks for sharing all these memories with us. No, thanks for having me, guys. That is Dave Bolin. You can hear more 
World Junior News and Notes on next week's edition of Around the OHL on our weekly podcast. Thanks to Jake Jeffrey for helping out with the podcast all this year and with that interview. Next up, we'll check in on the Business Cares Food Drive on London Live because I do believe final totals are in. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You know, it's nice to get good news, isn't it? Sometimes it's nice to get even better than good news. What about phenomenal, unbelievable, fantastifying news? Well, I think we can pull that off today. Joining us from the Business Cares Food Drive is Wayne Dunn. Wayne, welcome to London Live. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me here. Okay. You've been working very hard for weeks now. And very hard today, loading food and counting. Give us what it is that you have from this year's Business Cares Food Drive, please. Well, it's sure been quite the week, I'll say that. And we're thrilled to announce a 1.8% increase over last year. Well, Mike, that translates into a 443,000 pounds of food. Um, last year, we were 435,000 and for us to come anywhere near where we were last year is a significant achievement. Um, we are quite prepared. It was a lofty goal, I said, from the very beginning. Uh, because we like just last year, we just hit it out of the park for a whole bunch of reasons. And this year, we we're so fortunate to have uh, quite a few additional donors and people that got involved, uh, businesses. We're way up on businesses. And it all translates into um, a 1.8% increase. And for that, we're very thankful. So if we are to put this into perspective, taking into account not just last year, but but all other business cares, food drive totals, where does this sit? Well, it's at the top of the heap for sure. This is the 19th year we've been doing the campaign. Every year we've been fortunate to exceed it. And our, our goal has always been like one one pound more. And I know at the beginning of the campaign, look, at we're, we're still doing the same thing. But anything that we can donate, like figure last year was a 30% increase over the previous year before that. Um, and that's the significant amount that I'm referring to. So because of that, to come anywhere near last year, it's, um, it really is amazing. And the amount of food that was donated in the past week and the checks, uh, we had quite the celebration this morning down at the warehouse. Um, a lot of groups came in. The, uh, the checks we received this morning were so heartwarming. And, and Mike, they're, they're not like some of them are big checks and some of them are little small checks too. And over the period of the last few days, just even in the warehouse, uh, people coming in, dropping $20 off, $50 off, whatever the case is, or a bag of food. And that's where donations from our community, every little bit does uh, make a big difference. Wayne Dunn, chair of the Business Cares Food Drive. Londoners have come through an increase of 1.8% from last year, 443,000 pounds worth of food. Wayne, what do you think it is about this community that makes this happen year after year and that keeps the increases rising year after year? Well, London being London, I've been a citizen here for just all my life pretty well, and it it just doesn't change. The uh, people... Uh, yeah, there's a Christmas spirit out there for sure. But when people are in need in our community, people do dig in and give. Um, it starts with a great committee. Uh, we have an exceptional one of about 20 people. We have an excep- uh, exceptional amount of in excess of a thousand volunteers, Mike, that helped us. Well, well, well over a thousand in the last three, four weeks. And then it comes to just the community at large with the donors and 
whether it's businesses and staff, uh, people that work at these businesses and institutions, um, people on the street, going our grocery weekend. It, um, London's quite the place, and, you know, it's um, uh, we tend to and we should be looking after those less fortunate, and Business Cares uh, is able to do that. Wayne, finally, it's amazing to hear good news. Can you lay it on us again, a record? Can you can you tell us about it one more time? Well, I'm pretty happy to say it. It's 443,000 pounds, which is... 1.8% over last year, and uh, pretty amazing, and we're just thrilled. Wayne, congratulations. Thank you for all that you do, and all the best through the holidays. Merry Christmas. Thanks, and you too, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Wayne Dunn, chair of the Business Cares Food Drive. A record as they do it again. As Wayne said, last year was so good, you get thinking, no, no, it won't happen again. London comes through again. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We want to finish the show with something that you might have to listen to twice. It is a year-end interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that was done by Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. And she does a fantastic job in interviews. And she was able to sit down and talk about a number of different things. But what makes this so key and why we're playing it on London Live is there is a good chunk about London in this and about general dynamics, the LAV contract, all sorts of things, workers in this area, and we're going to hear the Prime Minister's reaction to her line of questioning. We're going to hear what he says about it. How much do we read into it? Well, why don't we hear it first and then make some decisions? And then we'll also play you another part of the interview, which deals with things within our own borders now, you can see the whole thing on the West Block on Global on Sunday. You'll be able to find it at globalnews.ca. And it's one of those ones, like I said, you almost want to hear it twice. So here's the first time. We will have the full interview again at globalnews.ca and on the West Block on Global on Sunday. Here are Mercedes Stevenson and Prime Minister Trudeau addressing China and Saudi Arabia. And with that, talk about London. General Dynamics, and the LAV contract. Let's look overseas. Mm -hmm. China Mm. has been a huge issue for your government in recent weeks. Do you believe that China is a national security threat? I think China, as the world's world's, uh, second largest uh, economy and growing, is going to be a place that Canada needs to have a consistent and uh, very carefully thought out policy on. I mean, one of the challenges of, of previous governments is there was often sort of a hot or cold approach on China. We've been very trying, very much trying to be consistent in uh, looking for economic opportunities, looking for ways to benefit from access to uh, an extraordinary growing market of hundreds of millions of people who are part of the global middle class in China and their desire for Canadian products or desire to come visit Canada and spend money as tourists. These kinds of things are positive but the flip side is we need to make sure that there is a a framework a predictable level of protections for Canadian businesses and for Canadians uh, when uh, they go to China when they engage with China while at the same time we're standing up consistently for uh, the rule of law whether it's concerns around uh, the South
South China Sea, uh, whether it's concerns around uh, treatment of Uyghurs in, in, uh, in, East, in Western China. Uh, there are uh, questions that we're always highlighting, and we're very much on those two tracks of engaging substantively in the kinds of values-based issues that Canadians expect and looking for ways to uh, protect and promote uh, Canadian interests. Before you came to power, you'd said that you admired some of the efficiency that the Chinese government had, uh, often quoted. You also prioritized, when you first came in as prime minister, trying to develop a free trade agreement with China. Has your opinion of China changed? I think we, we've demonstrated that having a predictable uh, structure around how we engage with China would be good for us, making sure that there are rules. And as we've looked at a, a trade agreement with China, uh, you know, some of the points of contention that we had were, were things like uh, we were expecting uh, movement on, on labor rights if we're going to have a free trade deal with China. We were expecting uh, a level of comfort with uh, the free press and media. Uh, these are things that aren't just um, nice-to-haves or add-ons, they are fundamental to how we think Canadians will remain protected in a trade where the scale of the Chinese economy versus the Canadian economy is, is mismatched in certain ways, uh, but that we think we can do in a mutually beneficial way that abides by our, our values and our concerns. Speaking of intelligence, national security, of course, Saudi Arabia mm. comes to mind. Um, you've put sanctions on a number of the individuals who are believed to have been involved in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi. You haven't sanctioned the crown prince, however. Why not? Um, when I uh, met with uh, the, the crown prince in, in uh, at the G20, I asked him some very direct questions about uh, Khashoggi. Uh, we talked about Raif Badawi. Uh, we talked about uh, about the need for a, a ceasefire in Yemen. Um, I indicated that Canadians were, like people around the world, uh, outraged by the murder of a journalist. That is something that goes to the very heart of the principles that we know underpin our democratic freedoms and the stability of, of uh, uh, and rights of people around the world uh, and I said that we need uh, better and clearer answers and we are working with our international partners our five eye partners we're working with uh, with uh, Turkey and others to try and get to uh, better accountability for uh, the murder of Khashoggi why not disclose to Canadians how much it would cost to cancel the LAV contract um, there uh, was a contract signed uh, by Stephen Harper, by the Conservative uh, government, uh, that features uh, a number of very difficult clauses, including a confidentiality clause that would uh, leave us in, uh, vulnerable in the, in, the, in the billions of dollars. Um, and there is a tendency and a potential to try and play politics with this. I can understand why anyone who sat in Stephen Harper's caucus when that, that uh, contract was signed uh, would not want the details of that contract to be, to be made public. Uh, but we are very, very aware that there are a lot of jobs on the line. There are jobs on the line in um, in, in London, uh, at not just the p folks who work at GDLS, but uh, the suppliers in the region that we are very, very uh, careful and thoughtful about. But you know, I also heard uh, the leader of the opposition uh, talk about uh, cancelling uh, any importation of Saudi oil uh, as a, a way to go. Now, again, I choose to make politics and, and practice politics and debate based on facts. And I think the leader of the opposition well knows that there is only one uh, refinery in the country 
that imports Saudi oil, and that is the Irving Refinery in St. John's, at which and you thousands, be that off. thousands of people work. Most of that Saudi oil actually flows to uh, to the United States. None of it currently goes to Quebec. So there's a lot of misinformation and playing politics with people's jobs going on that I don't think is something that a prime minister should engage with. We're going to take very seriously the responsibility we have towards workers in London, toward workers in St. John's, towards workers in Oshawa, towards to workers to in, in Al Albert, uh, to voters, uh, to workers in Alberta as well. Sorry. Do, do, do votes win, though, over the moral line that maybe we should be drawing in the sand? Well, they, those are reflections that we do need to have as, as a Canadian, uh, as Canadians. And certainly our stance on sanctions, uh, the fact that I directly challenged uh, the, the Crown Prince on these issues, the fact that uh, we are continuing to engage robustly uh, in looking at uh, the continuation of export permits, these are all things that are complex situations that Canadians expect us to be, be weighing uh, our values, our principles, uh, the impact on Canadian families, and figuring out a way forward that is the right one for us. That is one part of an interview between Mercedes Stevenson, the Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So you heard his line, of course, well, what, what is a Prime Minister going to say? We are going to do what we feel is right to secure Everyone in St. John's, in Oshawa, in London. Again, what, what do you make of that? Is he, is that just, is that just rhetoric? Is that just what he has to say? Or can that be done? That's one of the big questions going forward in 2019 and has a big impact in this area. In a moment, we will let you hear a little bit more of that interview because Mercedes Stevenson does just such a fantastic job in asking questions. She's just, she's so calm and she stays with different points and, and she's not afraid to interject. And we'll look within our own borders here in Canada and hear the prime minister's thoughts about the trans mountain pipeline and a few other things about how Alberta is feeling going into 2019 could we see a Canada West one day? Well, that's not the first time anyone's rumored that. I don't know that it's going to happen right away, but you've got a lot of unrest. Alberta's not a big fan of anything that goes east of Saskatchewan as it is. Now, they've got even more reason not to like anything east of Saskatchewan, or certainly anything east of Manitoba. More with the interview from Mercedes Stevenson and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You can actually hear it at 8 o'clock on 980 CFPL in its entirety, and we will also have it on the West Block on Global this weekend, and it will be available at globalnews.ca, and it's one of those things you may want to check out twice. London Live continues in a moment. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, did a year-end interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We just heard him talk about the Saudi Arabia contract that affects General Dynamics. We heard him talk about the oil contract that affects St. John's, Newfoundland. He referenced General Motors. Well, let's have him talk more about what's going on within our borders here is more from Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson with Prime Minister Trudeau as they focus on what's happening 
in Canada. What message do you want to send to Canadians as we head into Christmas and the election in 2019? Oh, just that the political debate that happens here, that happens in uh, the West Bloc that we'll be moving to after Christmas, uh, will continue to be focused on them. We'll be focused on bringing people together and talking about how we try to respond to the big challenges we're facing now and into the future. And the fact that we come together as representatives from every corner of the country to serve and, and bring forward the concerns of, their, uh, of our citizens uh, is one of the extraordinary strengths of Canada. Well, and speaking of concerns of your citizens and big issues, oil, of course, mm -hmm. a huge one right now. Your government has announced over $1.6 billion for Alberta, but it's not for more pipelines or for rail cars, which is what the Alberta government and the oil industry were asking for. Why didn't you give them what they requested? Uh, I think, first of all, we, we need to understand how much of a crisis uh, folks in Alberta are going through right now. Uh, families are suffering. This is an extremely difficult time. When I was out there a few weeks ago, I heard from members of the industry, members of the public who were really, really worried about the situation. And we were you know, pleased to be able to move forward and uh, supporting some of the companies and, and bringing forward short and medium term solutions. But we know the only real solution uh, for uh, Alberta oil companies and for the industry is uh, to get our resources to new markets other than the United States. That's been something that has been at the top of the industry's wish list for about a decade and a half now. Uh, and uh, we think we're getting closer than we ever have before, but there's, a, there, there's still a lot of work to do. How serious do you think Western alienation is? I haven't met a lot of Canadians in any part of the country that have ill will towards any other Canadians in any other part of the country. Although Albertans were met, booing French the other day. Met, I haven't met a lot of Albertans who genuinely wish ill of Quebecers, and I haven't met many Quebecers at all who wish ill of Albertans. I have seen politicians uh, of various stripes in various places trying to uh, foment negative sentiments and play the kinds of divisive cards that we've seen in the past. That's not my job as so Prime you Minister. You don't think Western alienation is growing? I think, I think there are politicians trying to exploit it, but I, I know that Canadians right across the country understand that we need to be there for each other if we're going to succeed, that when folks are facing a tough time, whether it's in Alberta or elsewhere, we need to support them. Is part of this based on votes? Because that's one of the theories. There's only a few seats in Alberta for the Liberal Party, and th therefore and there's been I've, a reluctance I've to act. bought a pipeline <laughs> because, because we're looking for pipeline. more seats. That was the only one for sale at that particular moment. I mean, what do you want me to say? This was the project we needed to move forward in the right way on. It was about to be cancelled by the proponent. Uh, you could make it easier uh, to build more, though. You could ease some of the restrictions. Uh, that's one of the things we're doing, actually. We're moving forward on C69, which is actually going to create a clear process that will allow big projects to move forward. The Canadian Mining Association, uh, that is the, the industry that has the most environmental assessments, has welcomed uh, this C69 because it creates more clarity for projects. It, it removes the doubling up of, of oversight from provincial or, or, uh, or federal. Uh, it brings shorter timelines, less stopping of the clock, uh, earlier consultation, so there's better predictability. And the minister gets to make the ultimate decision. Um, 
I think I think people understand that there should be a level of political accountability on this, and not just uh, unnamed bureaucrats having the final say. I think Canadians trust their politicians uh, to make the right decisions in the national interest, and I think uh, it, it's important to have a process. And actually, uh, one of the things that that industry had asked for when we did many of the consultations on how to get environmental assessment right in a way that works for industry, uh, they said they didn't want unnamed anonymous backroom people uh, making determinations without accountability. Uh, speaking of accountability, uh, steel tariffs. Mm -hmm. This has been a big issue for Canadians and aluminum. It affects a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. Why haven't you been able to make progress on getting those removed? Uh, we have been uh, working very, uh, very closely with the American administration on exactly that. I think people understand the American administration uh, is uh, is particularly attached uh, to using 232 tariffs as as a tool. Uh, but we've been working with members of Congress, with business leaders, uh, with governors who understand that tariffs hurt people on both sides. We're not happy about having countervailing tariffs on bourbon, on products that people are importing from the United States, uh, but we understand that, that this is something we need to do in order uh, to get the political, uh, political will to remove those tariffs in, in the United States. There are a lot of Canadians who are concerned about volatility right now, mm -hmm. whether it's populism or the economy, they're watching their savings go up and down. Some are worried about what's going to happen with the Bank of Canada in January. If there's an interest rate hike, they could lose their homes. Your government is still spending into deficits. What are you doing to prepare the country for a potential recession if you're spending when times are good? Well, I think, I think there were two very, very different conceptions of how to grow the economy and how to uh, help Canadians on display in the 2015 election. Uh, the Conservatives uh, were committed to their continued approach of making cuts to things like veteran services or family benefits and, uh, and, uh, and balance the budget at all costs as you know, the best marker of uh, what is benefiting Canadians. We disagreed. We said the best way to help Canadians uh, would be to actually grow the economy and create jobs in a way that uh, Stephen Harper's government wasn't able to do. We put more money in the pockets of the middle class. We've uh, given Canadians the confidence to create 800,000 jobs over the past three years, to grow our economy at rates that we hadn't seen under the previous government and, and continue to lower our debt to GDP ratio uh, in a way that is among the best in the world and we're continuing continuing to be on a downward track with our debt as a, as, a, as a share of the economy. And the top ratings agencies around the world that actually bondholders who, who lend money to countries like Canada have consistently ranked our approach and our, our fiscal plan at a AAA. But if you have to spend more and mm -hmm. the country goes into recession, where does that money come from? Well, if, if we are spending. Uh, on uh, and investing in things like better public transit, better housing for Canadians, uh, better training, better jobs, better job opportunities. That is going to give Canadians the resilience to handle any shocks that happen to the economy. So it's about are we investing in the right kinds of things? And we made the decision to put more money in the pockets of the middle class, more money in, in kids who, who need after school programs and, and have better groceries uh, in their lunches uh, because of the Canada Child Benefit. And we've had tangible positive outcomes in, our, in that. And the fact that our debt as a share of the size of our economy continues to decline means there is room um, you know, for us to adjust if we do hit rough waters. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau with Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. You can hear the full interview 8 o'clock Sunday 
on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You can also see it on the West Block, and it will be available at globalnews.ca. Let's take a final break on London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are out of time on this Friday. I'm away cooking, cleaning, and wrapping. Who's kidding? I don't do any of those things very well. I'm going to try. Thanks to Christian DeVito for his help today. So next week, we're going to look back in time a little bit on London Live. Brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist. Jacqueline LaBelle is next with news. All the best. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.